stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. One thing about me is that I am big on family. Another thing is that I have a big family. I grew up surrounded by siblings, uncles and aunties. From playing murder in the dark at a cousin's birthday party, to being public nuisances at Jenanese, the now-closed Sri Lankan restaurant in Wentworthville. A big family does not come without stress. I am well-versed in the strife caused by the auntie network, a term given to the tendency for South Asian aunties to gossip and share news of the personal lives of their kin far and wide with surprising speed. I'm also quite familiar with the theft of my joy through comparison to every one of the 13 cousins who also live in Sydney. But this price of admission into a big Tamil family is so worth it. My aunt, who is known among the cousins for insisting everyone is more than well-fed, my uncle, who saw me on a date with a girl before I came out to my family and told me he loved me and would keep my secret, my cousins, who forced me to watch all the Twilight movies while I was in the throes of a depressive episode, the humans that make up the complicated and messy thing that is a family are the reason why I will always be grateful for being born into my weird, loud, and absolutely gorgeous family. Our first story is an exploration of the sounds that a new parent encounters in everyday life. The story's producer, Michael, calls it a love letter to mark the arrival of his daughter. Every morning at around 6am, we're starting the day uh, fresh, anew. There's a range of sounds waking us up as they resonate through that morning air. The birdsong up against the rumble of commuters and cars and the occasional 57 trams screeching around that corner reminds me of where we are. Emerging into a new day. Thank you. 
This place of home though, this place has changed now. What was once a time reserved for the birds and the trucks and the commuters and cars and the distant screech of the 57 tram is now a time where each morning the clamouring of the outside world dissipates and time stands. It all falls by the wayside as now there's focus. Now there's you. That story was produced by Michael Everett. Daniel Simo was the supervising producer. Our next story is another look at family and parenthood, but describes the way that community care can fulfil these needs rather than traditional family structures.
G'day all. Thank, thank you, Yo. Right, 1997. I'm living on the RAF base down at Tyndall, the single airman's quarters, and life's one big adventure, full of lots of laughter and fun. And um, coming up, there's an event, the uh, airman's ball. Now, it's a black tie ball, and I look around Catherine, and I'm a little bit... I'm a little bit larger than the, the average man that shops in Catherine. And I find I can't find a suit in my size. Darwin's no better. We come up to Darwin, it's no better. And I think, what am I going to do? I need something. And I look down at this old wooden Singer sewing machine Mum's given me to sew up jeans and that. And I think, I wonder if I could put a suit together. Surely it's not that hard. <laughs> anyway, I drive up to Catherine, go up the spotlight. There's this bright yellow material with elephants on it. And I, so I come back to Catherine with this material and a pattern, and I put together this suit. <laughs> now, living on Tyndall at uh, the RAF base, and it's like one big family. And um, you celebrate all the special occasions with everyone there, whether it's um, births, funerals, kids' birthdays, and there's parties most weekends. Now, I've got a, a good friend, Tony. She was having a birthday, a 30th birthday. She's a single mum. Back then, she was single with uh, two kids. And she's enjoying life to its fullest. Um, so we go along to a 30th birthday party, and it's quite a good night. And um, about midnight, um, a lot of people are either going home or they're going back to Wings, who's one of the main nightclubs down there that us Raffies used to go to. But she's a bit worried about the kids because she hasn't organised anything. I go, oh, it's all right. I'll look after the kids. I'll just sleep on the couch upstairs. You go. So anyway, everyone sort of leaves the party. And there's a girl that I've been talking to all night, Sue. She's a quiet girl. Quiet to start with. She's got this so what, black T-shirt with white, so what, emblazoned across the shirt. So, you know, there's that hidden spark there. Um, stays back to clean up you know, with me, and we just keep chatting. And um, once we finish, she goes home. You know, I'll go up and go to sleep on the couch. In the morning, um, Tony wakes me up, I'm on the couch, and she goes, who cleaned up after the party? And I said, oh, yeah, I picked up a few things, and Sue gave me a hand. And she goes, Sue? Sue never stays with strangers. Anyway, we didn't sort of think too much more about it. The next night, I'm working late shift out in the, the raft boat base, and um, the phone rings. And it's Tony. She goes, what did you really think of Sue? And I go, yeah, she was quite nice. You know, we chatted quite, quite well. It was a good night. She goes, I think we need to get you two together. And I said, OK. So Tony's a bit of a matchmaker there. So she organises, uh, we'll, we'll organise a, a dinner with friends. Little did I know, I was caught hook, line and sinker. There was Sue in the same room with Tony while she's on the phone. And I thought I was just talking to, talking to Tony. Anyway, we organised this dinner out and, um, with friends. And I asked her out on a date. And, um, and, to the, and I said, well, there's an airman's ball coming up. Would you like to come? And she said, yeah. I go, OK, it's a black tie ball. And then I think, oh, oh what am I wearing? What sort of first impression is this going to make on a, on a date? So I've, first date, 
this is what I wore. <laughs> so I say to her, her and Tony are going to meet me out the front. And I say, well, I'll meet you out the front. I won't tell you what I'm wearing, but I'll stand out. <laughs> anyway, they turn up. Obviously, I don't scare her off. The nights are, are quite a hit. And... Um, she obviously accepted me for my loudness and my quirky sense of fun. She loves the material. She's a primary school teacher at the time, and she actually identifies that it's from a, a, a kid's book, Where Do Elephants Go at Night, by um, <laughs> Paul Salmon, I think. Anyway, I didn't know the book. She did. So I um, apply for a job with the Bureau of Met, and I get out of the Air Force. And um, this is three months after meeting Sue. And I'm all excited, yep, there's a new job. I'm going to travel the territory, you know, all different places. And uh, Sue, she's a pretty fantastic girl. I can't just let her slip away. So we'd only, three months after I first met her at this party, went out to a restaurant in Catherine, and I asked her, will you marry me? And she responds, of course. <laughs> so... That was, the start, that was the start of the Australia Day weekend in 98. Now, I, as a lot of you might know, that was the, um, that was the weekend with the... Um, <coughs> sorry. That was the weekend that Catherine flooded. Um, so we got engaged and a natural disaster followed. <laughs> Fortunately, it wasn't, wasn't an, it wasn't an omen. But instead of celebrating our engagement, we spent the weekend evacuating people out of houses. Um, I spent the time driving boats. I think I went into the Pine Tree Motel, into the car park next to me, the motors jumped up at the back, and I look around, I look around behind me, and all I could see is a car aerial sticking out, and I go, oh, prop marks in the roof of a car, obviously. And Sue's at home with a washing machine running full time and supporting people who had got flooded and, and had no home left. But what we realised then was we, we made a pretty good team looking after people. So anyway, moved to Darwin, we get married, buy a house, and we decide to start our own family. Now, things, not everything went to plan. We were pretty good at the exercise of trying to make babies, but nothing was happening. And we find we have to go down the, um, the route of IVF. Now, IVF, it's not exactly the romantic way you sort of imagine when you're thinking of making babies. Hormone injections, mood swings. Um, we're in a darkened room with mood music. I'm gazing into Sue's eyes while the doctor's down the other end harvesting eggs. And that's the term that they use, harvesting. I get to walk into a, a room by myself with it, and I come out with a paper bag with all the other bits and pieces needed to make a baby. But it's all worth it because Sue's soon pregnant. We enter the second and then the third trimester. And so we've got a baby on the way. But there was a complication just before the, the birth. Um, she's got an inflamed gallbladder. And the doctors go, well, that needs to come out. But we need to um, have the baby first. So she's pumped full of drugs and all that for a couple of weeks. And we have the baby and the beautiful daughter, Kiri, she's born. But because Sue's waiting for a surgery, I become the primary carer for the first two weeks. Now, I've been around kids, but this is my first experience as a parent. And I remember the first, the first poo. There's Kiri. I've got her in one hand trying to get the nappy off in the other, and somehow 
I've got it on the singlet. And as I take the singlet off, it's smeared all the way up this poor baby. Sue's lying in bed with a, with a pathidine hooked up to her, crying, going, stop it, stop it. You, it hurts when I laugh. <laughs> anyway, the operation works and, you know, um, we, we go on um, back home, all that with our little family. Um, Kiri becomes about, Kiri's about two, and then Sue discovers she's pregnant. And we're excited, because it didn't require IVF this time. And, um, but that joy is short-lived, because she goes through a miscarriage and then has the second one. Now, it's a bit of an emotional drain on us, and Sue just says, I need a break. This is, I need something else to focus on, because this is just, it's, it was pretty tough. So Sue's always wanted to do foster care, and we decide, well, if we get into that, bring down plans for that forward and do it, it's something else to focus on and worry about, and still involves kids. Um, so we apply to the department to be volunteer foster carers. First placement we get is uh, two brothers, six and eight. We get them because their carers had a heart attack and um, can't look after them. So we look after them for two weeks until they, um, they actually go and live with their grandmother in Queensland. And to us, that was a great experience because here's these kids that they get to go back home and live with family. So more children come and go through our home. And then after a while, Sue's pregnant again and we still haven't been back to IVF. And it's great, it's amazing. Um, and that pregnancy actually goes without any complications. Um, we go see the obstetrician, and he goes, oh, IVF, and we go, no. He goes, oh, pregnancy in the wild. And uh, 2005, Lachlan, our son's born, and we decide to have a bit of a break from foster caring. Um, so what we're doing, we're focusing then on our own kids, and that's pretty good. But after a while, we sort of, you know, there's our two kids, but we sort of love that feeling of having a, a house full of kids and the noise and everything that goes with it. So we give the department a ring and say, "Rightio, we're ready to uh, volunteer again." That was 12 years ago. So Sue and I have been foster caring since then. Now, Kiri and Lachlan have grown up, and it's quite normal to have extra kids in the house coming and going. Um, we tell them they're foster carers themselves because when the kids come up, come in to our home. Um, Kerry and Lachlan help, you know, so they're quite proud to tell other people we're foster carers as well. And um, when we haven't had kids for a while, they actually ask us, when are we getting more kids? So we give the department a ring and say, <laughs> have you forgotten about us? Or, you know. And um, look, one of, my, one of my early memories there uh, is we had four sisters that we were looking after re regularly for respite, uh, probably once a month. And there's a, a photo of, of, we've got mattresses all across the floor in front of the TV, and the four girls are on those mattresses, and Kiri's in the middle eating popcorn. And it's like, it's a big sleepover. We've become the adopters' aunties and uncles. Um, but foster care, and it also comes with its challenges. We had a 12-year-old boy in our house, and um, he's at school, and he comes home, all excited one day, and he goes, I've got a date. Oh, really? And she kisses on first dates. I'm going, how do you know this? All my mates have told me. And I'm going, oh, rightio. Can I go onto YouTube and learn how to pash? 
what? And he go, no. And he goes, why not? I go, because what you'll find there is not appropriate for a 12-year-old. Anyway, I also get to learn how to lock down the internet quite tight because the kids that come and go through our house are a lot more adventurous on the internet than our own, own kids. Um, sometimes the challenges do, you know, become quite great with the foster kids and, and we have had times when it's started to impact on our own kids and we've had to say no to the department and that's quite heartbreaking because you feel like you failed but you haven't. You're just looking after your own kids. Over the last 13 years, we've probably had over 100 kids through our house, um, our home, and they range from eight weeks to 16 years. Some have come for a day, some for a fortnight, some for a month, and we, the longest we've had is three years. Now, that, that girl that we had for three years, that was, that was pretty good, because in the end, she went home to family back on community. Um, I've been asked why Sue and I began fostering, and I sort of struggle sometimes to answer, because it's sort of something we fell into. And, I, and nowadays I find the better question is not why we began, but why we still do fostering. And it's, you're walking down the streets and you get a kid call out, John, Sue, and they run up to you. Um, you know you've been a, a positive part of their life, or they're, they're at school, and they, um, they go out for a merit award, and you know that they're thriving despite whatever trauma they've been through. Um, it becomes a proud dad moment. Sue and I have given birth to two children, but I reckon our family's got more than 100 kids. And um, I laugh when people talk about a normal household or a normal family, because anything normal in our house is what's sitting on a washing machine. That story was told by John Price. In August 2017, at Spun's Darwin Festival, themed home. Spun is a live storytelling event, showcasing some of the extraordinary people and stories that make up the Northern Territory. You can listen to more at spunstories.net. For our final story, Heidi reflects on the challenges her mother has faced over her life and how she is far from an ordinary mum. Growing up, I always thought my mum was ordinary. She never finished high school, never went to university, and has held the same job in the same industry since she started working in Australia 30 years ago. She migrated from Hong Kong to Sydney as a teenager and went to Granwick Girls High School in Sydney's East. There she joined the ethnic minority who stayed quiet and out of the way. One wrong move and the so-called gooks would find their faces in a headlock and flushed in a toilet bowl. My mum spent many years living with her family of five out of a shoebox in Surrey Hills. She still can't believe that it's now a dream hub for wealthy hipsters. When she was in year 11, her dad decided to open a Chinese restaurant in Gunnanda, a small town near Tamworth, just like that. She had to drop out of school, pack her bags and move away. In order to fit in with rural Australia, Mum tried really hard to learn English. But in doing so, her Chinese actually got worse. 
And yet, despite her best efforts, her English was never seen as Aussie enough to get her a job outside of Chinatown. My mum was often confused about her identity. Was she Chinese or Australian? She was lost between two cultures and struggled to maintain two languages. In her early 20s, mum was told by doctors that she was infertile. So getting pregnant at 22 was a surprise that changed her life plans. She worked the nine months she was pregnant with me, and because money was so tight, she went back to work when I was only one month old. Growing up, I didn't see mum much. My childhood memories of mum are captured in blurry Kodak photos. I mean, I can see us together in them, but did these moments really happen? Growing up, I didn't understand why she wasn't the relaxed, stay-at-home mom that all my friends on the North Shore seemed to have. Why was she always so tired? Why wasn't I allowed pocket money? Why did she work so hard for a boss that paid her less than minimum wage? In my years as a troubled teenager, mom went down to part-time work so that she could be around more and make up for lost time. For me, it was too late. She took a pay cut to spend time with me after school, but I would make up all sorts of lies and stay out late into the night. If we did spend time together during those years, we were more likely to have been together in the principal's office. In my final year, right before the HSC exam, I managed to cop a one-week suspension. Once again, my mum had to leave work early to take me home. I'll never forget the look of disgust on my principal's face when mum stepped into the room. The red, hot anger that my principal had towards me was suddenly channeled towards her. How did you raise your daughter? Before I could step up to defend her, mum said, I'm so sorry. It's my fault. Please give her another chance. I was infuriated. In love, my mother took the blame. Mum didn't say a word on the bus ride home. We sat together in silence, and I was too proud to apologise. When we got home, she sat me down in the living room, and I waited for my punishment. Surely this was the deal-breaker. Surely Mum had had enough. But punishment never came. Instead, Mom put her arm around me, placed her head on my shoulder and cried. What's wrong, Heidi? Why are you doing this? For the first time in 18 years, I saw my unbreakable mom cry. Instead of punishing me, she entered my world and tried to understand my thoughts. She showed empathy and compassion my mum may have failed high school and her resume isn't impressive, but she is by far the most patient and gentle Christian woman I know. Growing up in a migrant home in Sydney, I was always so consumed by what I didn't have, not knowing that behind the scenes, my mum had fought to give me her all. Her story of untold sacrifice is not unique. It's a story shared by every migrant parent who, in the fight to assimilate, lives in a position of humble service and unwavering loyalty to their family. My mum has never voiced it, but I know she was once a young woman with big dreams. 
but she made sacrifices so that my brother and I could pursue our own dreams in Australia. Sure, her life's achievements will never make the headlines, but they are far from ordinary. That story was produced by Heidi Tucker. Alison Chan was the supervising producer with sound design by Gregory Thorsby. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arunde and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com. I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.